Hi, and welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast from the Purdue Center of Commercial Agriculture. I'm Dr. Brady Brewer, and I'm a faculty member in the Department of Agricultural Economics. And joining me today is Dr. Alan Gray, who is a professor and faculty member in the Department of Ag Econ and the executive director of the Center for Food and Agribusiness. Today's podcast focuses on the topic of farmer adoption and the retailer's role of enhanced conservation uh, in the adoption of those enhanced conservation practices. So, Dr. Gray, welcome. So, you did this research. Uh, well, actually, we both did it together did it, yeah. uh, with the research team uh, uh, in the Center for Food and Agriculture Business. So, let's just start out with, uh, you know, I mentioned that this is the adoption of enhanced conservation. What are we talking about when we use the term enhanced conservation? Well, interestingly, in the study, you know, we did a focus, we did focus groups with five different um, uh, uh, five different cooperatives in the Midwest region and then uh, included uh, both employee focus group questions and then farmer questions. And we started those focus groups with that exact question. What exactly is enhanced conservation? Because I think the definition can vary depending on who you're talking to. <clears throat> I, I think generally the way that people think about enhanced conservation probably means things like um, uh, cover crops and strip tillage or no-till uh, types of practices, things like that. But but when we did the study, I mean, we you know, 4R is one of the things that came up often and that, and that uh, retailers and the farmers often think about this, uh, the, the idea of managing the fertility of that soil uh, as one of the key enhanced conservation things. So th- and, and that includes even the things that I think we think of as standard these days, right, where we're doing soil testing and uh, soil mapping, grid sampling, uh, variable rate technology, but those would be considered uh, for many people what they would consider enhanced conservation. And then you go above that to what might be enhanced conservation. That's where you get to cover crops, no-till, that sort of. Yeah, and action. I think one of the one of the things <clears throat> having those. So you mentioned the five focus groups that we did with the agricultural retailers and and their farmer customers. The definition varied by region. Yeah. So this study we did was we did focus groups. In Ohio, Indiana, um, Iowa, uh, some of the t- service territories of these cooperatives and farmers went up into Michigan. So we, you know we covered really eastern and western uh, Corn Belt region, uh, but it, it varied, right? Ohio, the conversations there focused around water uh, and and some of the runoff issues that they have there with H2 Ohio. Uh, Indiana was we heard a lot about strip till in eastern Indiana. Uh, but strip till wasn't mentioned the farther west we got. It wasn't even mentioned as an option. So, um, you know, one thing to note is that these enhanced <coughs> conservation practices are not, you know, well, I say not universal, but what I mean is is they're not necessarily, they're pretty region-specific in what gets adopted. Uh, yeah, I was going to say it, it's about what gets adopted, and I think it's one of the things that comes out of the study pretty clearly is that, you know, uh, one size doesn't fit all. I mean, the different soil types and the and the... And the the level of slope in the ground, uh, the types of groundwater management activities that go on, those things change from, from uh, territory to territory depending on what the terrain looks like. I think that's that's pretty clear. Yep, and there's even some farmers that use some of the uh, conservation practices like terraces, buffer strips. Yeah. That was enhanced to them. So not only did it vary by region, but some farmers, what they considered enhanced even varied in some cases. 
So the purpose of this research was to look at, you know, so the, the adoption practices and the retailer's role. Uh, let's focus a little bit on the adoption, the farmer adoption, before we get into the retailer's role there. What were some of the barriers that we found in, in terms of what kept farmers from adopting some of these practices? Well, I mean, there's the there, there's the usual cast of characters, if you will, when you think about it. You know, the cost is is clearly one that they'd say, well, it's you know, it's expensive, or it's going to hurt my yields. Um, <clears throat> could could be a part of it. I, but uh, I think there are a couple of things that I thought really stood out different from what you would say. Well, these would be the standard reasons why people wouldn't adopt it. That, um, one of those was that it was it, it seemed relatively clear to me that the outcomes of adoption just aren't very clear, right? Uh, people say, well, it will improve your soil health, but it might take three to five years. And, and, and uh, or, uh, well, it will, uh, your yields will decline, but not more than 3% until, and then three years from now, the yields begin to increase, but they couldn't really show it, right? So it was one of the things that we kept exploring over and over and over is what, what uh, clear, um, details exist with respect to what you can expect the outcomes to be. And, and Brady, you think about that in terms of if you compare it to other things that farmers adopt, other technologies that farmers adopt, whether they're adopting new machine technologies or they're going to adopt new uh, genetic technologies, those things come with uh, uh, a refined company ability to say, here are the outcomes from making this technology investment. And when we think about enhanced conservation, we just don't have those sorts of outcomes that, hey, if you do, if you adopt strip tillage, this is the implication for your yields. And here's what happens to the water quality at the edge of your field. We just don't have those kinds of things readily available for people to, to provide to farmers. So. Well, and one, and to add on to that, one of the farmers in our focus group said, and even if you could provide it, right, they're going to be skeptical because they want to know what it does on their farm, right? Yep. Your trial shows that this practice <clears throat> increases yield, you know, in five years, X percent, but my soil type is different. My weather patterns are different. You know, that those type of variables, uh, the farmer said, hey, you know, I got to try it on my land first. And right now the cost to do the, to do that is just too much. <clears throat> well, and, and, you know, I've said this uh, in the past even, and it seems to come true in our, in our focus groups that, you know, you have to remember a, a, a crop farmer, right, has 30, 35 chances in their lifetime. You just that's not very many. You just you know you don't do something uh, that makes a that that makes a mistake across your whole farm uh, in in one year because that's a huge loss to to lose a year right and and to say well it might take three years to get the results that that's three out of thirty that's that's ten percent that's ten percent of your whole opportunity to do this so I think there's this natural barrier of of, hey, I got to protect what I got. And if it's working, I'm not sure I want to change to something that I'm not sure if it's going to work or not. And I think that's a big barrier for a lot of people is to say, and I don't know, what work, what I do works and, and, and that might or might not work. I'm not sure if I want to do that or not. And, and so there's a fair amount of folks out there that would say that's the barrier for them. There are some things, Brady, that I think are important to note too in terms of some conservation practices. So if you're not a no-tiller, if you're a till, if you're a tillage operation, right, to think that you're going to adopt cover crops tomorrow is a difficult thing to to 
to consider because we're not talking about just changing, okay, well, we're going to add cover crops. I mean, you have to change your entire machinery mix. Right? You have the, the whole way in which you go about farming. So you got to, one, know how to do it. Two, you have to have a different uh, set of equipment. It's a tremendous investment that ends up getting made there. And so there's a fair amount of people whose barriers are, well, what they're, what they're suggesting doing, I'd, I'd have to completely change the way I run my operation in total. And that's a pretty big expense. Yeah, and you know, thinking about the expense side, uh, one of the other things we heard was, you know, sometimes the the cost of adopting these isn't a direct expense, right? Going to buy the the, the strip tillage equipment, going to buy the cover crop seed, sometimes it's managerial time that's the cost. Uh, We heard from several farmers, hey, that production practice takes an extra pass over the land. Um, Right now, I'm already at capacity; like, I don't have the time to manage it. That's right. Um, and and that, that seemed to be more of the barrier than the actual physical dollars for some farmers. Yeah, clearly. That, well, I, the expense is fine because, you know, I see the benefits that might come from it, but I can't manage the farm that way. The logistics, right, often it's just a logistics thing. I just can't get back in there uh, after harvest and get that cover crop in in a timely fashion or – uh, we got to get it out. We got to get it sprayed, uh, get it killed before we come back uh, in there with the corn, and we run out of time to be able to do that. Just can't manage the the logistics side of it. Yeah, that, that came up several times. And you know, the, the one thing I do want to point out in so in the focus groups that we did, there were some farmers that were doing some of these trials. Right, we had one farmer in in uh, Indiana that said, "Hey, I I try everything. Right, if, if there is a claim out there that it could benefit my farm." If I have time, I'm going to see, try it um, and see what the impacts are on my farm. And he's like, and I've tried a lot of stuff that hasn't worked. And he's like, and it's probably cost me money. But I've also tried stuff that has worked that I didn't think would that has been beneficial for my farm over the past couple of years. So, you know, ran the full spectrum. And then we also had the farmer that said, no, until, um, until I'm forced to do it until you know you can verify that this is going to be this type of benefit for my farm i'm just not going to do it in, until that time you know i'd say brady from my perspective i think i was that was probably what i was most surprised by was you know we talk about well what are the barriers to adoption and so we're, we're making this list of all these barriers and it sounds like well i mean people just aren't doing it and actually what i was surprised by was a lot more farmers that we talked to were doing these practices than not doing it really yeah uh, now, some of that's probably that the, the cooperative selected a particular set of farmers or those farmers are the ones most willing to talk to us. I, I don't deny that, but, but uh, I was surprised at how, much, uh, how many of them were, were adopting these, uh, uh, practice, these enhanced practices, no tillage and, and, and uh, variable rate technologies and, and uh, cover crops and things like that that, you know, they, they, they were um, – open to the ideas, willing to try them, and wanting to do the to do uh, what would have the right kind of impacts, right? Uh, uh, they were struggling with, is it actually helping with soil health or water quality? I hope it is. I think it is. I can see why it would. And that's why I'm trying to do these things and learn how to do them. And so, yeah, I don't want to have a discussion about barriers and then make that signal be, well, farmers just aren't adopting this stuff. Actually, it's not true. What happened across the focus groups is many of our farmers were adopting these they were often in the early adoption phases and and could express some frustrations about this is hard it's different it's the management is different i've had to learn some tough lessons along the way but they were pretty resilient about um 
saying, yeah, we, what, it's not been easy, but but uh, we're learning and we're getting better at it and we, we know how to do this. So you mentioned the learning process. Uh, the next thing we really asked the farmers was, who are your partners in this adoption process? <clears throat> who do you lean to, uh, you know, that farmer that I said that does the trials on their farm, that, that you know, that's how they got into strip till. They, they did an acre, figured it worked, then they did several uh, fields, figured it worked, and then finally they're there to their whole entire acreage of their farm is strip till. Who's, who are they leaning to for information on these enhanced conservation practices, and then who helps them figure out the adoption process? We have a pretty long list, really, in the end. Um, uh, an awful lot of folks, you know, they look to their neighbor farmers who are doing some of this. That's always an important, it's important in just about anything you do in adoption of technology. Say, hey, I want to see if the, my neighbor next to me who I trust, if, they're, if it's working for them, I'll talk to them. A uh, fair amount of people who are talking to consultants, uh, um, crop consultants, right, who, who have a, a expertise in this area uh, are maybe working with some other farmers where they're doing that and they want to uh, work with those uh, consultants to do that. And then there were a fair number of them who said, well, my, my uh, local retailer, my local co-op retailer is really helping me uh, think about this to gather information. But uh, by and large, they get information. Most of the group that we talk to get information from wherever they can find it. They'll, they'll get it on the internet. They'll get it from the manufacturer. But but by and large, they have a person they trust. Uh, often a consultant seems like that's going to help them kind of think through what they need to do differently to make these things work. Yeah, it definitely seemed that, you know, like most of us, Google is our best friend. Uh, it seemed like a lot of the farmers started with Google, and their first source was wherever Google took them. And then they would take that to their trusted advisor, their consultant, their agronomist at their local retailer and say, hey, been thinking about this is what I researched. What do you think? And then that person helped them refine the plan. Yep. Yep. So thinking about this trusted advisor and, and the role of third parties or, or retailers and agronomists in this, uh, let's focus in on the retailers because the next part, we, we also did these focus groups with the agricultural retailers yep. that these farmers used. Um, what, did, what was the response we asked? these ag retailers, what they felt their role was in helping farmers adopt. What was what was the range of responses that we got? Yeah. Well, uh, so first of all, I mean, one of the motivations behind uh, um, discussing this with these retailers was the idea behind, <clears throat> you know, in the end, if we want to have uh, significant impacts on water quality, soil health, and air quality, let's say those are the three things we're really trying to see if we can have significant impacts on, uh, who can help influence that adoption such that we get big enough impacts? And, and the theory is that, you know, the ag retailer is the one who's in position to have the most influence and help, right, uh, uh, with the ability to make this a successful transition. That was the idea. So let's explore what's their role right now in terms of influence and, and do they have any opportunities to create a business model from it. That was sort of the, under the underlying motivation. And we had a range of responses from the retailers, right? So, so we we sort of uh, can boil this down into uh, what we would call a challenger group and a and a follower group of of retailers. If I thought about the two extremes, right? And and so the challenger group is the group that's sort of leading the cause, if you will, and they're out uh, advocating for changes in uh, practices that will help with uh, water quality and and soil health and air quality. Uh, that they are uh, a group that 
uh, has a set of folks who are passionate about it, that have expertise in the area, and that have the tools available to them to allow them to <clears throat> provide uh, good, sound agronomic advice on how to do things with respect to enhanced conservation, how to farm with a strip-till system, how to how to uh, manage uh, cover crops, the timing on cover crops, uh, uh, how to deal with uh, compaction issues, all those sorts of things that they, they they have the expertise and they've got the tools to do it with. And, and, and they have sort of, in the one co-op particular that we talked to, I mean, they've sort of made that a business unit in and of itself and said, we're going to make this into uh, a service that we're going to provide a value and we're going to be out front selling it, if you will, to help with that impact. So that's sort of your challenger group. They're going to be out challenging the farmer to think about, should we be doing this differently? Could we be doing this? How could we do that? Then you have this group that's called the follower group. And the follower group is the group that says, uh, <clears throat> well, uh, you know, there's some farmers in my region doing it. There are a lot of farmers who aren't. Uh, I'm worried about going out to a farmer who's not doing it and trying to uh, sell this idea to them because they don't, they may not like it, or uh, you know, it might hurt that relationship. So, way we're going to handle this is if a farmer comes and asks us, we'll give them some, we'll, we'll help them with it, right? Uh, if they come to us and say, "Hey, I'm interested in this," we have cover crop uh, seed that we can sell them. We can we can talk to them a little bit about. Uh, uh, strip till and what the options are there. We can talk to them about hybrid seeds, hybrid seed placement, depending on how you're going to change it. We, we, we can do some things to talk to them about that, right? Sort of uh, what I call the catch model, right? They're just going to catch whoever comes in and says, hey, I'm interested in this, but they're not interested, uh, at least at the moment, don't see it in their business model to say, I'm going to go out and and sort of be the leading advocate for let's make these changes. Yeah, and they, they definitely didn't see it as their role <coughs> to be that challenger. Right, right. right. Um, they, they didn't think it was their role with the farmer. Yep. Um, they didn't seem opposed to it, but they just said at this time, you know, not not something we're willing to, to do. Now, the challenger that you brought up, it was very interesting to me. Uh They, so that you, you mentioned they have a business unit, and as we know in business, everyone has to make a profit, um, you know, and they were charging a fee for that, those particular services, which I found interesting because it, it, it showed that the farmers, there was a willingness to pay there, right? That the farmers saw enough value that they were paying for these services that the retailer was providing. And in some cases, this retailer wasn't even making money on it. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, the enhanced conservation practices of variable rate technology. Uh, this retailer was actually helping the farmer do maps, do other uh, application um, items in the software. And in some cases, the farmer would then ask them to, to ship that over to a competitor and they were more than willing to do it because they saw it as their role to um, help farmers adopt some of these practices. Right, right. And I think it was uh, something too, Brady, that I think came up over and over and over. <clears throat> um, whether that retailer is thinking about uh, enhanced conservation practices and the consulting that goes with that and the, and the help and assistance with adopting along with some of the products that they might sell with it, whether or not they saw that as a business model seemed to matter a lot. And I, th and I think the reason was <clears throat> um, you have to have the right incentive structure inside the organization, right? Are, are you incenting your people to, to uh, be advocates of enhanced conservation, or are you incenting them to sell products? And and uh, the reality is that most of these organizations are set up 
such that their salespeople are rewarded for selling products, right? Not yeah. for selling advice. <clears throat> and that's been a historical challenge, particularly for the cooperative world, where service has been given away and we make it up on the margin of the product. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I would, I would argue that a lot of the, the service aspects the farmer's paying for it. It's just bundled in with the price of the fertilizer right, and the crop right, right. products they buy. <clears throat> but when you're selling advice on enhanced conservation practices, which has a tendency to be more about practices than it is about products, now you've got a challenge because you can't, it's hard to put that price inside the inside of a product now, right? And I think it would be fair to say that farmers have historically uh, not been keen on paying for these type of services. Right. Um, now it's changing. Right, as I said, there's the there's the retailer out there that's charging for these services, and they have a group of farmers that are more than willing to pay it because they see value. But I would say historically, farmers haven't necessarily been keen on, on paying that, and that's why it's been bundled into the price of some other uh, product. Agree, agree. So, you know, so you have some retailers that are are charging for this and being challengers, some being leaders. Um, how? What are some of the major incentives, though, for the farmer to adopt um, some of these practices? It, it is, is this going to come down to are there subsidies available? Do you think this is going to be legislated? Uh, you know, in, when we did our focus group in Ohio, I, you know, uh, for those of you not in Ohio, Ohio has a legislation called H2 Ohio, which regulates um, the water runoff of a farm, and the farmers have to closely monitor uh, that runoff. Um, is it going to come down to that? What What is going to drive adoption here in the future? Do you think it's just proving that value to the farmer? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, at least what we learned from the focus groups was um, incentives seem to matter, right? So the H2 Ohio program you mentioned is, uh, yeah, there's some regulatory requirements around the water uh, quality issues, particularly in the uh, Lake Erie Basin, a lot of the focus in that Lake Erie Basin uh, but uh, that program came with a substantial amount of incentives for adoption of practices, right? So a number of farmers viewed that as an opportunity to trial things, to say, okay, maybe I have an opportunity here because I can pay for uh, a, a, a strip-till piece of equipment, for example, or, uh, um, well, yeah, a, a deep-tillage strip-till uh, piece of equipment, which is a very expensive piece of equipment, yeah. but there's a subsidy here to allow me to be able to do that, and that gives me the opportunity to switch to something I've been thinking I needed to do anyway. And you know, I'm worried that eventually this is going to become a regulatory system, so I might as well learn how to do it now. And if I can get a subsidy to buy part of the equipment, then when regulations come, I'm already ready and prepared for that. So, so I think that subsidy part of that seemed to be really important because it had a number of our focus group farmers adopting things that they clearly said, I probably wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for that program. Uh, but it had a lot more to do with the subsidy than it did the regulatory side of it. So interestingly, you know, uh, any group of farmers I sit and visit with, they're going to complain pretty loudly about regulatory issues. Yeah. They weren't complaining about this. They were saying, well, I mean, there's an opportunity here to maybe do some things that could be of help, could be helpful. I know we're going to have to do it. It's clear the, the writing's on the wall that we need to do something about managing this water. There's some incentive structures here to maybe help us figure out how we can do that a little better. So they had a positive, uh, I, I think, outlook uh, on that. Uh, some farmers in other regions, uh, what you were looking for was people who, what you would see was people who just felt like, uh, quote, unquote, this is the right thing to do. Yeah. 
And so I'm gonna I'm gonna take on the expense and I'm gonna figure out how to do it because in Indiana we don't have incentive systems, right? I, b- I believe our farmers in Iowa said there was no incentive system in place out there. But in all cases, those that were willing to adopt were saying it's the right thing to do, and we're gonna have to at some point anyway. And and ideally, I think their view was ideally we would do this on our own and not be told by the government how to do it. We'd figure it out on our own and get the and that's the best way for us to sort of move that direction. But reality was it's likely coming in the form of uh, regulation or consumer pressures. And so we, we, we just have to be uh, focused on learning how to do this. Yeah, and I do want to take uh, take us back real quick to the various adoption because it does tie back in here with, with the incentives. We actually had one farmer that said, well, I want to, but I'm not going to do it on any of my leased land because uh, you know, we mentioned that the benefit sometimes is three or five years before you start seeing that benefit of some of these practices. And they said, you know, I'm not gonna do it on a piece of land that could be taken away from me next year. Um, you know, at that point I incur all the costs of investment but get none of the benefits. Um, so there is a discussion here on, on the uh, adoption practices to think about how lease land versus own land plays into that and how do you uh, also reach the land own landowners, which are sometimes either absentee or family members in, in the region that may be dictating uh, uh, certain practices on that land. Right. Well, so I, I, I sort of, uh, I heard the same comments in that focus group and and have heard that many times, that, that, you know, the investment it takes to adopt these things makes it hard to do it on rented land. I guess my perspective is a little different, Brady, in the sense that I say, you know, you're always looking, I think, in in this environment for the opportunity to create a differential advantage for yourself in that land leasing market from your competitor, because the reality is you're all competing for those pieces of land. Uh, These are opportunities maybe to have those conversations with your landowner, even the absentee landowner, who I actually think it might resonate more with, to say, these are the kinds of things I would like to do to enhance the soil quality on your land and to improve the water quality coming off of your land to make sure that we're not having, uh, we're not ha- we're not creating negative consequences for what we're doing with your piece of land. I, to me, it seems like an opportunity to differentiate yourself with that landowner in a way that might resonate with them. Yeah, and that's where, uh, you know, probably a lot of the talk when, when we as economists or the, the people pushing these conservation practices, you know, we tend to focus on the yield aspect. Okay, you know, uh, you'll see a dip of, of 5% now, but in, in five years it'll be regained and, and you'll be making money on this investment. But there's value there to the land, right? You are improving the quality of the land, and that, that is returned back to the landowner. So I, I think uh, that conversation needs to happen as well. And, right. and it's probably misunderstood by a lot of the landowners. Right, right. Well, I think it's one of the things that I think is really important, Brady, is to uh, help people think about what that long-term benefit of that investment is beyond just the money side of it, right? Every farmer I know is a conservationist. Yeah. And they want to be able to have that farm available for their family, for whatever the next generation is, to be able to farm the same. I don't think there's anybody not wanting to do that, right? The, the, the challenge is which are the right things, which are the right practices to do that will, will uh, allow me to know that I'm going to be able to pass that along, right? <clears throat> well, with that, we will close our conversation. If anyone wants to know any more uh, information about this study that we did, 
Um, you can visit the Center for Food and Agricultural Business website at agribusiness.purdue.edu. For other economic uh, information, visit the Purdue Center for Commercial Ag's website at purdue.edu slash commercial ag. On behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture and the Purdue uh, Center for Food and Agricultural Business, uh, I'm Brady Brewer, and we thank you for listening.